So in 2010, I, was, uh, I had a job where I commuted to work by bike, and one morning I had a little run-in with a Jeep, and when you have a bicycle versus Jeep accident, the guy, the physics of it are just never in the favor of the guy on the bike. And so I, I broke my jaw in five places and stoved part of it up in my head and knocked out a bunch of teeth, and it was just a mess. Nice little helicopter ride down to the University of Virginia and some titanium plates and screws and all this, and they put me back together. And um, my brothers came in and, and looked at me and said, man, if that's a $120,000 face, you should demand a refund. Um, so... What are brothers for? But uh, I, I broke this section completely out. And so when they put it back in, some of the nerves didn't grow back quite correctly. So part of my lip doesn't, um, doesn't track quite as well as it used to. And so if I say anything this morning that sounds a little bit odd or a little bit weird, that's because I spent three years in Boston. Um, really messed up the way that I speak. Um, so had nothing to do with the accident. Well, it is... Uh, it is a delight to be here. I think there was a lot of good conversation that happened last night. I was um, blessed by the music, by the questions, by the way that people were engaging with that. And so we do want to take that next logical step, moving from identity to authority. Um, and sometimes to do this, well, we have to kind of back up and get a running start. We sang passionately about uh, Christ reigning forever and his lordship and the Lion of Judah and these authority-type songs. And we're like, yeah, rah, what does that mean? Um, okay. So we, we sang about it, and now we're just going to spool back a little bit and think, what does that actually entail? What does that look like? My youngest brother is a high school track coach, and every year he gets one of these kids that uh, comes out for track, and then on the first day he's like, all right, three-mile warm-up. And they're like, why do we have to run? He's like, how did you join a track team and not think you're going? <laughs> like it just, every year there's one. Um, and so we, we come into that sometimes, I think, you know, Jesus is Lord. How did you think you're going to submit to Jesus as Lord and there not be stuff for us to do? How did you think you're going to submit to Jesus as Lord and not think that might have something to do on how we submit to him? Um, and so that's what we're doing. But we've got to sometimes back up and get a running start like we did last night talking about the image of God. We start back with the Imago Dei. What did God say? And so to do that, we, we start back of the idea of there being a holy God who is uh, separate from. That's what it means to be holy, to be sanctified, to be separate, to be different than, to be other than. He's not like us. I think you did a series, God's not who you think he is, something like that. He's not like us. Um, You can't touch this. And this was way before MC Hammer. I mean, so he's just out of our league. So the, the holiness of God is something that he is celebrated for throughout the Old Testament, and it gets difficult. Uh, Joshua, at the end of Joshua, tells the people, hey, you're going to have a hard time worshiping this God, because he's good and holy and perfect, and when you mess this up, it's going to be rough. A holy, set-apart God. And so you have this God, who he's on the mountain, and, and his glory is so intense that the Israelites are like, well, ah, no, Send Moses, we don't want to deal with him. God is, is too revealed in that moment. Because of his holiness, the people push back from that. Um, and then later on, what do they say they want? We want a king. There's a holy God, but we want a king. And the prophets are like, ah, this is a bad idea. This is not going to go well. And God's like, all right, you want to play this game? Have it your way, Burger King style. Uh, you can have a king. You can have a king. And so the people forfeited the concept of God as their king for an earthly king. Now, God blessed that and used it and made covenants with the kings, and Jesus is going to show up in that lineage, and and God will redeem that choice that they made. But 
we live in that of, hey, we want to we wanna be like everybody else. All the other nations have a king. Why can't we have one? And so fast forward a couple thousand years up into the turn of the, uh, uh, the birth of Christ around that time, and uh, we get a little uh, inscription like this. What's this written about? Who's this written about? Somebody wrote uh, around the year, uh, well, you can guess. So since Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has, sent, uh, has set in most perfect order by giving us, fill in the blank, and speaking of providence, who she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, since he is Lord, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipation, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even, not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing that which he has done. And since the birthday of God was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. Who's that about? Caesar Augustus. Ah, gotcha. Caesar Augustus, the year 9 BC. The gospel, the son of God. He's going to end war and he's going to be awesome. Uh, The beginning of the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. The beginning of the gospel. And then a couple years later, this guy, this book of Mark is written. And how does it begin? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We've got two people applying for the same position. There's going to be a little conflict in the world from here on out because another king has showed up. The gospel, the good news, the proclamation of a king. Who's running this show? Another glove tossed into the ring. When we talk about the gospel as good news, um, we talk about the gospel as the enunciation of a kingdom, or the way that it was used before Jesus here, as we see in this. In this um, you know what? I got to thinking about it. The enunciation of a kingdom is not necessarily good news. It's just news. If I said, hey, good news, Assad or Mubarak is the king of the United States, you'd be like, ah! No, And so the enunciation of a kingdom and whether or not that's good news depends entirely on the character and the nature of the king being announced. Right? And so when, when Mark writes good news, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he does it, I think, with a bit more excitement because he knows something about the character and the nature of the coming king. And when there's a king, it implies a kingdom. And when there is a kingdom... It implies boundaries. It implies laws of the land. Um, And this is uh, something that it's easy for us to celebrate as Christians, but it sounds very restrictive and oppressive from the outside looking in. In fact, a very wise man, Sam Albury, pointed this out to me recently. He said, you know what? And and I, I believe this is true. He said, people don't necessarily, when they engage a new idea, we're living in a time in which uh, engaging a new idea, you don't necessarily start with, is this true or not? The first questions you ask are, is this harmful? Is it harmful or freeing? The second set is, is this, uh, is it harmful or helpful? Sorry. The second one is, is it restrictive or is it freeing? And the third one is, is it fair or is it unjust? So is it harmful? Is it restrictive? Is it unjust? Those are the categories that we tend toward more. And so when we start talking about the kingdom of God, about authority, we're like, oh, that's restrictive. 
And it implies a boundary that's being forced on me that is to restrain and restrict and to narrow who I am. Um, is this being recorded? I'm going to bet on my mom not listening to this because I'm going to tell a story that she asked me never to share in public. Um, so it goes like this. Um, as we start thinking about boundaries and this idea of authority and, and direction and what are the limits to where we should go, this happened when I was a kid. So my, you know, at some point in life, you come up, I'm going to have a new hobby. And so my dad thought, how cool would it be? We had a little bit of land. He's like, how cool would it be to take a wild horse and train it and like break it? So, you know, mom's doing a little bit of eye rolling, but dad finds somebody has a horse and we get fences built and all this and get this crazy horse. And so dad spends the evenings after work messing around with this horse. Um, and at some point in the, in the training of this horse, he's working on getting the horse to really trust him. And so he's leading her under things and through narrow gaps and all of this. Um, I'm one of three boys, and so we're running around watching Dad with this. And he gets the, I don't know where these ideas, if you're married to a guy, you'll be like, oh, that makes total sense. Um, he thought, the final step in getting this horse to trust me is I'm going to lead it through our house. <laughs> and so here came Dad up the steps, with a, leading a horse, across the porch, into the foyer of our house, through the dining room, the wooden floor, so like in between the dining room table and the china cupboard. Um, and comes to the kitchen, and my mom's uh, in the kitchen, and she looks up, and there's my dad standing with a horse head over his shoulder. Um, and she handles it pretty well, all things considered, and just said, you know, I don't think this is the best thing for the floors of the house. This could create some problems. And dad's like, yeah, you're probably right. Backs the horse up and out the side door, and nothing happened. Of course, all of us as little boys, we were just waiting for the china cabinet to be kicked out the window or something. You know, um, what happened there? Not a good idea. Not at all. Um, when we think of boundaries and being in the wrong place, we oftentimes think of it like this. What my mom said to my dad was, the horse is not good for the house. You can leave hoof prints in the flooring. The horse is not good for the house. But what we don't think about on the other side of that is that the house is not a good place for the horse. The horse can't live there either. It has n- Nothing that a horse needs, it doesn't have the space, it doesn't have the food, anything. And so oftentimes when we think about um, divine boundaries, we see this as something that is restricting and confining rather than saying, actually the boundaries are freeing because it keeps us out of the places that aren't life-giving. It keeps us in the, on the, in the proper way of doing things that don't, and this is why it comes back to why we started with identity, because it matters about what we are and who we are and whose we are, because it means that there are ways in which we can behave that aren't life-giving for us, that are um, restrictive. You know, it's, it's this, the sense of looking that there's all kinds of sheep imagery in the New Testament, right? And there's this idea of if you drive down the road and you see some farm animals and they're fenced in, you can think, look, that fence is restricting and repressing all those animals. Actually, the, probably the reason the fence is there is so that wild animals don't eat the sheep. Probably the reason that the fence is there is so the sheep don't run out into the road and get hit by a car. Um, probably the reason that the fence is there is because that's where the best, most nutritious grass is. And so there are two ways of looking at boundaries. And, and if we feel like we're on the inside of the fence, we're like, oh, this thing's holding me back. But when we zoom out and look at the big picture of it, we can see that the boundaries that are given to us are a gift from God. And it goes like this. You know, anybody, anytime you buy something, there's always the little fine print, right, about the warranty on it. Um, and, it, and it voids the warranty if you do these things with this product. Um, if you use your iPhone as a Frisbee, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. You just shouldn't do it, and it's listed in there. This voids the warranty if you do this because the person who created it knows that if this product is used in this way, it will ultimately destroy it. 
And so for us to come into conformity with God's plan for the world and to see him as an authority, we're saying, how is it, Lord, that you made me that I can behave in such a way that I'm not going to destroy myself in this process? Well, first, I guess, are you capable of making decisions that destroy yourself? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) turn on the news. Um, Look in your own heart. And it's not just out there, it's in here. But So we recognize that we have the capacity to get ourselves out of line in bad ways. And so I would submit to you just as a a simple, quick description here that when we talk about sin or we talk about evil, uh, both of those are essentially the violation of purpose. It's taking something that was intended for good and using it as a bad way, in a bad way. Think about what was the first sin in the garden? Uh, You know, it says that Eve looked and saw it was pleasing the eye. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. God gave us eyesight. Uh, Reached out and took. Reaching out and taking, that's not a bad thing. Um, It's the context in which she expressed those uh, abilities that God gave her that was a problem. Um, I don't know. Do you have Whole Foods around here? Um, If you see me standing outside of Whole Foods holding an avocado, what do you know? You know I paid way too much for an avocado. Uh, (laughs) No. Did, did Did I steal it or did I buy it? You don't know, because largely the same set of skills that it took to walk into the store and grab the avocado and walk out, stealing it and buying it are pretty much the same. I mean, you see what I'm saying? So it's the context in which the gift or the power or the ability is actualized that makes it sinful or in keeping with God's promises. So there uh, are things that he gives us um, that are made for our flourishing and for glorifying him, and somehow we turn around and take the walking stick that he gave us and poke ourselves in the eye with it. Um, it's just the human capacity to mess up good things. Uh, and so that is evil. That is sin when we violate the purpose for which something was given. Now, the second part of this is um, my willingness to abide by a rule deeply depends on how I feel that the person giving the rule feels about who I am. And so if I have a concept of saying, ah, you know, God's just a mean, maniacal God and wants to see me angry and bitter and have to, woe is me. Um, that's different than I I think. You know what? I don't fully understand why God is asking me to do this, but I do know that he loves me. I do know that he has the long-term plan in mind. I do know that he sees the big picture. I'm going to trust him on this. That's a a more satisfying way to live within the kingdom of God. Because let's face it, and we'll talk about this in a second, Jesus asks some pretty weird stuff of his followers that doesn't make a lot of sense in the immediate context. Um, but in the big picture of what he's trying to do, does. Oftentimes, I don't know if we still use that phrase. Did you ever use the who died and made you king thing? Um, You know, we used to do that with our brothers all the time, right? Who died and made you king? Um, And we run into Jesus. Who died and made you king? I did. What? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Kind of nifty how that worked out. Um, You ever notice that God has a job reference problem? When God shows up to people, <laughs> or like when Moses was, um, you know, going, you know, interacting with God, God's going to send him down. And he's like, well, who do I tell the people you are? So if God's applying for the job, who does he put down as a reference? Who, who else exists that he can be like, well, check in with so-and-so, and they'll give, you know, there isn't an authority that he can appeal to. So he says, I am who I am. Now, he does concede some things and give some character references, at least. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look back at what I've done in the past. And based off of what I've done in the past, you can can develop an idea about my character, which you can kind of logically evaluate here and say, is this the type of God 
that we want to be saved by? Is this the type of God that is capable of saving us? Is this the type of God that is capable of giving us laws and regulations and rules for our benefit so we don't ultimately just kill each other out in the desert? Uh, and so he does give character references in that sense, but it's a sense of, of looking back to see what God has done that the Israelites could do. For us, a lot of that reflection and interaction about the authority of God and God's character comes from Scripture. And you can't really talk about authority in the church and not talk about Scripture. And the reason I want to dwell on this for a minute is because this is one of the sneakiest um, bypasses or... Ah, this is difficult here because it's so easy to say, yes, I believe the Bible is inherent, inerrant, um, and make those proclamations and sing about it. But I think um, there's some, some insidious things here where we are now living in a time where we believe two things simultaneously largely in the American church. We, we believe in inerrancy and irrelevancy at the same time. So we say, absolutely, that's the word of God. And if I was in Corinth in the first century, that's what I would have believed. But now that we're in this enlightened 21st century, um, that's, uh, you know, it doesn't maybe meant by something else, you know. You, you see what I'm saying there? And so in one way we're saying, yes, we believe Scripture is the Word of God. But on the other hand, we're looking for ways to say in which it doesn't apply to me. And there are ways to do this that are very um, theologically and philosophically fascinating. Because, and we find these ways to put ourselves back in charge here. Um, and so we, we, we give kind of this mental verbal assent to uh, the authority of Scripture, but then we say, well, okay, so here's what the text says. Um, well, let me ask this question to you this way. Let's throw it out there. So, you have Scripture plus what equals the proper interpretation of Scripture? Scripture plus question mark equals proper interpretation. What goes in there? And what we often do is we say Scripture plus a proper understanding of the Greco-Roman world equals the proper interpretation of Scripture. Well, now that's fascinating, because when you get to that point, then you're saying, oh, hey, we all need a PhD in, you know, Greco-Roman history. See what happens there? So we take this and we say, oh, or what about my personal experience? Scripture plus my personal experience equals a proper interpretation of Scripture. Some of you said it. Scripture... If we see Scripture as, the, as the, one of the fundamental byproducts of the Holy Spirit, it's a work of the Spirit. Spirit comes to glorify Christ, it glorifies the Father. Scripture is about the Word, the living Word of God. These are words about the Word in, in essence, about pointing to Jesus. And so uh, the Holy Spirit speaks. If, scripture produces, if the Holy Spirit produces Scripture, why would we not think that the Holy Spirit is the one that illuminates and guides now, obedience is also part of that, and also having a community around us is an important part of discerning the Spirit's uh, teaching and guiding also. And so it's, it's multivariable, but we want to be careful about that when we think about authority of how do I find ways to say, okay, here's the passage, and this is actually pretty tough. So my default position is, how do I figure out how to make this not apply to me? <laughs> um, and so oftentimes, our, our more in-depth biblical study, uh, which is a wonderful thing, as long as we're not using it in order to explain why something doesn't apply to us. We can use it to push deeper into it, to get a fuller sense of the meaning, and historical context and all that is absolutely important. I'm not poo-pooing that idea. I'm just saying let's be careful that we aren't developing kind of a, a, a Bible-reading strategy in which we're trying to figure out how something doesn't apply to us. And, and you, let's say, ah, we're not, nobody, nobody openly says this is what I'm trying to do. Just watch for that in the back of your mind. It's something I have to check on. Um, 
of saying, how, what is the proper order of authority here? Um, is this really me looking to Scripture to justify what I want it to say or what I feel, or is it the other way around? It's a, it's a strange thing because we use the same vocabulary either direction that we're going. Um, and so it's always handy when you have a preacher that's preaching out of Scripture. Uh, that's a, a good start. But, again, the reason it's important to come back to the identity part is we have to believe that we're the types of cre- creatures that can engage spiritually. Just as I have a right hand that I can reach out and shake hands with will, I have a spirit. It's part of being made in the image of God that allows me to reach out and grapple with and interact with that which is spiritual and to be influenced and inspired and guided. Remember we talked about the Holy Spirit's coming to convict and teach? Yeah. So God isn't just, you know, kind of lobbing stuff at us from a distance and saying, hey, sort this out, work this out. I'm interested in see how Rittenhouse will apply that one. It's an interactive type of authority that's given out of love. Sometimes... Um, actually, do we have the slide for the, the Daniel um, passage? Think about this. So Daniel has a, is having a vision and uh, looks up and says, as for the rest of the beast, okay, I'm going to jump down there to, uh, he's having a vision about all this crazy stuff. Um, and so, as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And the Son of Man is given dominion, is the heading there. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came, to, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His is the dominion, his dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You're not going to vote him out of power. You're not going to kick him out of power. This is just the way it is. And, of course, Jesus picks up on this language heavily um, throughout the New Testament where he refers to himself as what? The Son of Man, pointing back to this Daniel like, hey, let's just remember, it's easy for us to uh, believe, oh, Jesus was just a good moral teacher, blah, 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 kind of a nice guy, said some interesting things, sort of like Gandhi, you know, whatever. No, that's not what Jesus was doing. I like what Dallas Willard, he said, said, if we believe that Jesus is just a good moral teacher, we have to believe he was a good moral teacher, but was fundamentally flawed about major elements of his own message. Because this was a massive part of what Jesus was talking about, about the authority that he had. And that's why this, there's this transfer of authority then, when we talked about last night about uh, he and me, I and him. Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. To casting out demons and healing people. In the name of Jesus. Why? He has the authority to do it. And so we're, we're footnoting our reference and our source. It's not in the power of Nathan that I go out and proclaim this, or in the power of Nathan I heal this person. It's in the name of Jesus. It's a transferred authority. It's given to him by God to take care of things. In my name. Some, as you're reading scripture, look at all this place. In my name, in my name, in the name of Jesus. It's a powerful thing just because it's a reference to this deep imagery that he has of, we sing the song, let your name be lifted higher, Right? How does that work? I always think in my mind of like an organizational flow chart. You have the CEO at the top or whatever, and then it flows down, and you can kind of follow up and see who your manager's manager is and all that, right? In my mind, when I'm singing that song, let your name be lifted higher, I'm moving Jesus up the flow chart. Let your name be lifted higher. He's in charge of, no, he's not. He's in charge of my manager and my manager's manager. Oh, in the whole world, you know, that kind of thing. Let your name be lifted higher to put him back in the proper perspective of being the Lord of everything, There's a flow chart here, and it all flows from him. Now, 
Okay, so that's, yeah, Scripture is a source of authority. Obviously, Jesus is a source of authority. Then how does it trickle down into the rest of the world? What about leaders within the church? What about our government? What about the devil? What about, what about, what about, what about? And we're simply singing here and reading and studying and reminding ourselves that Jesus is above all of this. He's above all of it. He is the authority. And so in that passage, it, uh, in other places, even in Revelation, it talks about every knee is going to bow before him. And it doesn't say every knee of those who like him. It doesn't say every knee of those who... You, you've seen the movies where, they, where the, the rebel gets captured and he's brought before the king, right? And he, and he just kneels down. Is that how that happens? No, you always have like the soldier like kicks him and slams him down, right? And so I think in those visions of like, and every knee will bow, there are two ways to do this. You can kneel with a grin in your soul or with a boot print in your back. Um, all of us are going to hit the deck in the presence of God. Uh, King of kings, Lord of lords, hallelujah. And so it goes back to this repeated theme throughout the New Testament of saying, oh, this is good. Oh, this is good. And you get a little bit of a sense here. If you are an oppressed people, if you're a minority, and you think about the early church getting started, having really no massive social pressure influence, certainly no political pressure influence. They didn't have great academies or infrastructure. Good news. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm with that guy. Who actually Nero, who actually whoever, Caesar, and that's how they went to their death, right? You remember the thing where they would bring them up and, and force them to burn incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And that was kind of your declaration of reminding you, you know, of making, checking obedience. And what did the Christians say? Christos Kyrios. Christ is Lord. And then got their heads whacked off. But they did it with a grin because it's a form of rebellion. Of saying, I see your system. And it's not that it's terrible. It's just kind of weak compared to the alternative. And so that's not just an old message for an old time. It's a good thing for us to remember also because, A, there's an authority to it, but there's also the, the posture of that authority toward humanity. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so we start seeing that, yes, Jesus does have this right as a king to demand these things of us, demand, demand allegiance, demand obedience, um, and all of those things are true, but it's the way in which he does it that's just a little bit backwards, a little bit different. That gives us a, a foretaste. He, he humbles himself to allow us to come into this before he comes back in full force of what it is that he has. And so this gets difficult for us as we uh, live as people under the authority of God because it's going to mean that we're going to... Two kingdoms happening here, right? And we're going to start playing by a different set of rules as we follow Christ, and that's going to put us in conflict and tension with the world around us. Um, and it's going to be a challenge, particularly in how we think about um, love. Where does love come from? How does that happen? Is love something that I define from within myself and I conjure it up within me and I uh, express it however it feels right to me? That's a pretty popular view, I think. Or is it that love is something that transcends me, that pre-exists me, that's inherent in the character and nature of who God is and that I experience love in the most satisfactory way when I participate in something that pre-exists uh, me. It's beyond me. And actually, the nice thing it does is it takes the burden of making myself lovable out of me and says, I am loved by God. I don't have to bear that burden of making myself lovable. Um, it's a fascinating thing. Which way is this working? Which way is it coming from? How do I live and interact within that? And we find ourselves going in different directions than the rest of the world does in those categories. There is 
no depth to God's love. There are boundaries to the, the, the direction of God's love. And so to say that God's love is limitless is not to say, oh, it's whatever we want it to be. There's clarity to it, but the depth of it is what's important here. I think you see so many examples of this in the Old Testament of there's, there's a, this idea of the way. Um, and, and God's saying, hey, if you're, if you're going with me and uh, what I have for the world, you're going to experience this as love. But if you're driving backwards on the interstate, this is the flow of traffic, and you're going the other direction, you're going to experience that as my wrath. It's going to be hard for you. Like you said to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Um, and so the, the same love of God that, that is forcing and wooing and pushing and calling and driving us in a direction is experienced as wrath in our lives when we try to rebel against that and say, oh, nope, I'm going, I'm turning left on this one way. Um, it just, the way we experience it, it doesn't work out like that. But for those of us who do want to do that, think about some of the, the passages of Scripture. I love this one from Psalm 16 where David um, says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And you're like, oh yeah, of course they are. You're the king of a country. That's pretty, you know. No, he's not talking about that. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And here's a guy who's crossing boundary lines. The horse has been in and out of the house a couple times in the life of David. Um, but he reflects back on this. The boundary lines have fallen me for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. The boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. This is a good place to live. Uh, when my wife and I got married, we rented this little house that was on the side of a edge of a farm. And at night, the farmer's cows would jump the fence to eat the grass in our yard. And so I'd always tell my wife, see, the grass is greener on our side of the fence. Um, <laughs> If you want to find out where the greener grass is, look for the direction the cows are jumping. And David says, hey, the boundary lines are in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance from the Lord. And, and there's this relational element to it, right? I have a God who counsels me, who helps me out in these things. And so he doesn't see those boundaries as burdensome. First John, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And so there's this invitation into authority that, again, it goes back to that thing from last night, right? Do I have to have my independence to have my dignity, or can I have, be dependent on an authority and sense that as freeing? Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. There's a conformity to the pattern of Christ in this world. And so as we come into, uh, we're going to do some Q&A here in a little bit. Um, so be wrestling with some of these ideas that you want to bring up. Just going to touch on a couple more things here. Um, we have to ask ourselves this idea of, of master and servant and how we pick that up and how that actually plays out in our lives. I'm always really struck by the passage in, in Matthew 20 of the workers in the vineyard. Do you remember this one? So the guy goes out in the morning. He has a vineyard. He's looking for some workers. He goes out first thing. And he finds some guys. He's like, hey, you want to work in my vineyard? And they say, sure. So he loads them up says, hey, I'll pay you this for the day. They go to work. The third hour, he does the same thing. Sixth hour, ninth hour. And each time he says, hey, I'll pay you the same thing. Same amount. Goes out in the 11th hour. These guys come back. The end of the day rolls around. He tells the guy, hey, pay everybody the same thing. Okay. And then here's the weird part of the story. He says, start with the people who started last. Those who showed up in the 11th hour. And so the guys who started and have only worked one hour show up and get paid a full day's wage. And probably if you start at the beginning of the day, you're thinking, oh yeah, this is going to be good. And then it works itself back through, and everybody gets paid the same amount. And, hey, 
if you had sweat dripping off your nose for 12 hours, you'd be a little ticked about this, right? And so they say, what gives? And he said, hey, you agreed to the wage? It's the way it is. Are you upset because I'm gracious? Here's my question. Why did he pay them in that order? Because he could have, he could have solved the whole pro- problem if he paid the first guys first. They would have taken their money and left, and they wouldn't have known that the other guys got it. Why did he do that? He created this problem intentionally. What if it was this? What does he say to them? Or are you jealous? Are you envious? Are you troubled because I'm a gracious master? What if he paid them in reverse order in order to show his graciousness to all of the workers? If you think you're earning your salvation or your favor with God and everybody gets paid the same, you're going to be ticked off when everybody gets the same thing. If you think what you're getting from God is due to his graciousness and you see somebody come in at the last hour, you say, yeah, that's my God. That's how he does stuff. I wonder who showed up for work first thing in the morning the next morning. And on some hand, sometimes we, we laugh and we say, oh, you know, everybody's going to show up at the last hour. I don't know. I think if I was on the street corner the next morning, he said, who wants to work in my vineyard? I would say, I want to work for that guy. He's a gracious master. I want to work for that guy. Is that the case? When you look at the character and nature of Jesus and you think about his authority and his lordship, does he live the kind of life, does he treat people in a way that you look at him and say, I want to work for that guy. He's a gracious master. And so the authority is there, but the grace is also there. I mean, once we've made that decision to step in that direction and say, okay, I'm going to give my life to Christ. I'm going to let him call the shots here. And he's not going to strip away my individuality. He's going to make me more fully who he intended me to be in doing that. But I'm going to let him call the shots. And so that's why Paul writes things like, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. In a similar way, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Paul's picking up. He's like, we see this in every other category of life. If you join the army... That excludes a whole lot of other activities and behavior. You've got to focus right here. If you join the track team, you're going to have to run. If you're going to line up for the kingdom of God, you're going to have to fall in step to the marching orders of the king. But it is a gracious king. And that gracious king uh, kind of does, reminds us of that, that the way up is down, right? Like it says in Philippians, Paul again writing, he said, And being found in appearance as a man talking about Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that is the kind of guy that I want to be in charge. 